0: I'm Laura London, and this is a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Young. Joining us for the 13th edition in this series is author and illustrator, Mr. Mike Cleland in Saranac Lake, New York, and Jungian analyst Dr. Kenneth James in Chicago. Mike Cleland is a seasoned outdoorsman and UFO researcher who has written extensively on the subject of owls, synchronicities, and alien abductions. It was his first-hand experiences with these elusive events that have been the foundation for this research. His long-running blog, Hidden Experience, explores alien contact, and how it overlaps with a long list of other strange phenomena. It also features extended audio interviews with visionaries and experts examining the complexities of the overall UFO experience. He hosts a monthly podcast, The Unseen with Mike Cleland, on WhitleyStrieber's UnknownCountry.com. Mike's first book, The Messengers, explores the mysterious connection between owls, synchronicities, and UFO abduction, and includes a foreword by popular UFO historian Richard Dolan. Originally published in 2015, an updated edition was released just last year. A companion book, Stories from the Messengers, is a further exploration into the connection, both symbolic and literal, between owls and UFOs it reads like a collection of short stories, with each chapter telling a deeply personal story where these mysterious experiences are explored in depth. The foreword was written by best-selling author and UFO abductee, Whitley Streber. In between, Mike published a selection of his blog posts in a nearly 400-page book titled Hidden Experience, A Memoir of Owls, Synchronicity, and UFO Contact. It includes a foreword by Red Pill Junkie. Both stories from The Messengers and Hidden Experience are available as audiobooks, read by Mike himself, and they are intense, I've listened to both of them. Mike is also considered an expert in the skills of ultralight backpacking, and is the author and illustrator of a series of instructional books on advanced outdoor techniques. He has worked as an outdoor educator in some of the most beautiful and remote areas of North America. He spent nearly 25 years living in the Rockies and now resides in the Adirondack Mountains of New York. Dr. Kenneth James holds a PhD in Communicative Sciences and Disorders from Northwestern University and a diploma in Analytical Psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian Analyst from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Along with a background in mathematics, he completed four years of postdoctoral study in theology and scripture at the Catholic Theological Union. He has also taken lay ordination as a Zen Buddhist under Roshi Richard Langwa and studied the Kabbalah with the Luba Victor, Rabbi Mayer Hai Benyun. He holds the rank of Professor Emeritus after a 33-year career as a university professor, and now devotes his time as founder and director of the Soul Work Center in downtown Chicago, where he practices as a Jungian analyst. He is also a frequent speaker at the C.G. Jung Center in Evanston, Illinois. In addition to his appearances on this podcast in Episodes 45 and 56, Dr. James has been a guest on Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight, Fade to Black with Jimmy Church, and the long-running late-night radio show Coast to Coast AM. Please visit the website speakingofyung.com, where you'll find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Sunday, January 24, 2021, through the magic of Skype. Dr. James, Mr. Cleland, thank you so much for joining me here today.
1: You are thank most welcome.
0: Let me introduce both of you so that the audience knows your voices. So Mike, will you say a few words?
1: This is Mike and I'm um, I'm have been looking forward to this uh, for since we talked about it. this I'm, I'm actually quite you. excited about this.
0: Thank you so much. And yeah, I was a guest on your podcast, The Unseen, a couple weeks ago, and I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. And this is kind of a continuation of that talk, I would say. And I've asked Dr. James to join us here today. Dr. James, would you say hi?
2: Yes. Hello. This is Ken. And I listened to that podcast. And so I was really excited to be able to be a part of this today.
0: I, I just want to say a little bit about what I'd like to cover in this episode because I thought I had a lot of notes uh, for the episode with, uh, for my interview with uh, Dr. Sonu Shamdasani, but this tops it. I actually have 23 pages of notes in front of me <laughs> <laughs> oh. because there's so much to cover. And of course we can't cover it all, but we're going to try. So just so that the audience knows kind of, I don't know, just maybe a summary of what I would like to cover. One is the difference between archetype and metaphor, the difference between a synchronicity and a coincidence, the difference between a sign and a symbol, and the difference between the subconscious and the unconscious. We're really here to focus on Mike, his books, his experiences, and to have Dr. James provide commentary and to clarify for us Jung's concepts. Because what I would like to do with Mike is to look at this from a Jungian perspective. Mike, you've been on I don't know, dozens of podcasts, hundreds of podcasts.
1: Maybe not hundreds, but many dozens, yes.
0: Yeah. Many dozens of podcasts. Uh, you, There are videos of you on YouTube giving talks at various conferences. And so a lot of your stories have been out there. Uh, you do have your own podcast. Uh, the Hidden Experience blog uh, is you interviewing people and you talking about your experiences and their experiences. So... What I'd like to do here is focus on this from a Jungian perspective. What you're kind of known for are owls and how owls seem to appear in your life around synchronicities that you experience and your UFO sightings, your possible abduction experiences. But... What I'd also like to add before I stop talking and let you two speak is that, Mike, people seem to go to you to share their stories. And that's what your blog is about, is about your experiences and their experiences and your books as well. So where would you like to begin?
1: Well, I mean... In my own research and in my own life, you know, the the, the research and the books and the podcast that my website went up eleven years ago, and that's when I sort of publicly started talking about. Well, actually, twelve years ago now. Gosh, it's it's twenty twenty one now. But um, publicly trying to talk about my own experiences. That the genesis of that website, I guess I did it unconsciously in a way, but at the same time I was. Feeling sort of needy at the time, and I wanted to have answers. So it was a kind of a public, open diary in a way of yeah. me struggling with my issues. And those issues would be, you know, am I, have I had UFO contact? And part of that unraveling or that, or that, or me doing self therapy in a very public way was I had, I was seeing a lot of owls. I've talked at length of that, uh, you know, if you stack all three books up, they, it turns out to about a thousand pages of UFOs mm-hmm. and owls. And so mm-hmm. I feel like I've covered that topic, you know, ad nauseum in a way that maybe <laughs> maybe I crossed a line and covered it too well. But uh, it, at, what I found is that, and this is the culmination of all that writing and all the sort of uh, gritting my teeth and trying to make sense of this, is that in some way, reality... If, if these experiences are to be believed, these UFO contact experiences, I'll call them, I'll say they're taking place in, you know, our reality, even though they do oftentimes have a very dreamlike quality to them. The story elements and the narrative of these events often play out with a kind of dream symbolism. And I'll just give you a very short uh, example. This is one that fascinated me. A fellow contacted me. His name is also Mike C. Uh, He's written, I wrote a whole chapter about him in the second book. He was driving home from work. He crossed a bridge. An owl flew right in front of his face. And it scared him. It really jolted him. So he had like sort of a shock to the system. And this is full daylight. This isn't at night. And this is in traffic in a, in the suburbs of a, a city in Massachusetts. He crosses a bridge, he makes a turn, and then within about a half a mile, he sees a hovering flying saucer. Now he's in traffic; he can't do anything. It's on the side of the road. He doesn't sense that anyone else sees it, and he moves along, and he's stuck in traffic, so he he loses sight of it. And as he was driving away, it just rises off into the into the clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, the point in that story that that really stuck out for me is that he had just crossed a bridge and he had seen an owl. Now, there's one more aspect to this story that made it significantly uh, more intense for me. And he was listening to my voice on his... He was listening to a, a talk I had given. So he was driving his car, listening to my voice, talking about owls and UFOs as he saw an owl and UFO. And I can't separate that from the from the other the rest of the story. But the one element that fascinated me was that he had just crossed a bridge. Now, to me, that is like dream symbolism. So here's like this symbolic sort of. Um, I, I, I'm cautious to use the term archetype, but there's a sort of a dream element, dream symbolism, a bridge, you know, crossing from one place to another. And then there's also the dream symbolism of the owl, and I would also say the dream symbolism of the UFO. These are so I th- these stories this is this is what um, I kind of kind of say, this is what floats my boat is these stories mm-hmm. that are so rich with this kind of symbolism, so consequently, people are contacting me with these stories. I'm putting a lot of energy out there asking for these stories. These stories are arriving mostly through my email inbox. other times people write me letters or I talk to people at conferences and such. but people are contacting me and telling me their stories that are awash in this kind of kind of powerful symbolic uh, I, I use the term mood or vibe. like these these stories are sort of saturated with this mood or vibe of something that that for me gives it a stronger resonant power. So that's where I'm coming from. Some of my own experiences certainly have that element to it, and that is what has fascinated me and that is the um, that's the thread I'm pulling on, the stories with these okay. elements.
0: Okay, so that's great. So let's use that as an example. So just to clarify, this gentleman was listening to your interview while he was driving.
1: It was a talk I had given, yes. So he was listening to a talk. He had downloaded the audio of a YouTube video mm-hmm. and was listening okay. to me talking about owls and UFOs okay. as he saw an owl and UFO.
0: Right, while he was driving. He sees the owl and UFO, and now, Dr. James, what what do you what do you say? Is that a synchronicity? Let's start there.
2: So, let's look at that because um, technically, a synchronicity I, I call it kind of level one synchronicity, from Jung, is about a link between an event occurring in the mind in the psyche, an image, a dream, and a resonance of that in the day world or the so-called outer world or waking life. It comes from Jung's uh, belief that psyche and matter are two sides of the same coin or two aspects of the same reality. In philosophy, this would be called monism. The concept of synchronicity has been extended I would say maybe in the past 30 years or so to mean, in addition to that, which I'll call the classical uh, definition, Mm -hmm. synchronicity has come to mean the meaningful co-occurrence of two events that are not related causally, but somehow are connected in terms of underlying meaning. And so that this would be an example of that second type of synchronicity.
0: Let's talk about the fact that Jung coined the term synchronicity. And his essay, which uh, just like with his quote unquote book, Flying Saucers, which I hope we get into later, his essay, Synchronicity and A Causal Connecting Principle, is not a book but it was has since been published as a book it is an essay that is contained in volume eight of his collected works which is the structure and dynamics of the psyche and i'll have a link to that in the show notes but it is jung who coined the term now i have heard it misused a lot and i've asked various analysts throughout the history of this podcast to clarify that term. But I don't think it's going to change in the popular culture. I don't think that word is used the way Jung originally uh, explained it, outlined it, and the way he conceived of it with the physicist Wolfgang Pauli. So it's being used more today as as a, a, a simultaneous occurrence? Is that, is that what you said?
2: A simultaneous occurrence, not connected causally, mm-hmm. but connected at the level of meaning. And I, I think that one of the reasons why the classical definition is so difficult to um, get a grasp of is it relies on something that was very, very important to Jung, and that is the reality of the psyche. Yes. And I think we live at a time, uh, I can only speak for our cultural time now, um, where we still have phrases like, oh, it's all in your mind. Uh, We we don't really take psyche seriously as a reality Mm -hmm. in the way that Jung felt was important for us to do.
0: So now Mike's example of... The gentleman in the car seeing the owl and the UFO. Owls are nocturnal. Mm -hmm. They only come out at night. But, Mike, you said this was during the day.
1: Yes. So it's obviously you can see owls in the day. But, yes, this was during the day. So
0: I, yeah, I was wondering about that you ha- have so much experience outdoors would did you have you ever had a, a sighting of an owl during the day?
1: oh yeah many times so so um the problem is at night you don't you don't see them because it's dark out and mm, you're asleep right. so so they're out all the time at night so if you do catch a glimpse of an owl during the day it's you know it's not uncommon so the bigger the owl the more it might hunt during the day um, okay so, if an owl's out during the day they're just hunting the same way a hawk would hunt
0: so the fact that an owl and a ufo both appeared to this gentleman in a car during the day cuz again ufo during the day i mean they usually are seen at night because well i don't know if that's that's so true
1: yeah that's that one would be tough to pin down whether you you know so the same for the same reasons most people are not out at night so if you're going to see one it's most probably going to happen during the day
0: So now could, could this, this was obviously not a dream. The the guy was driving a car. So how would you look at this, Dr. James?
2: So I'll start with, this was obviously not a dream. I've been working in this field long enough to sort of question the boundaries. (laughs) Um, Is it a dream? Is it waking life? Uh, Those distinctions can, can kind of fade a little bit, I think. But clearly, this would have been a deeply moving and meaningful event. It was Mm -hmm. for the person who experienced it. And the way I would look at it is, okay, definitely this is a meaningful coincidence. And we could use the term synchronicity in the second uh, sense that I talked about earlier. And moving even more deeply into it. It would lead me, if this person were sitting with me, I would say, so I'd get associations to owls, to UFOs, which would include knowledge. It would include, you know, natural history of the owl, symbolism of the owl, uh, the person's understanding of UFOs. And then I would push for an exploration of what might link these two very disparate events together how could we understand them as being uh, expressions of a same underlying reality or the same underlying element in the deep psyche? And it would be that element that I would call the archetype. So the archetype gives rise to archetypes create experience in the same way that um, instincts create behavior. So that the activation of the archetype, which itself has no content and no image, brings the human being to the point where they are able to organize the sense data all around them according to a certain underlying pattern, a coherent pattern, and that would be the archetypal pattern, a co-occurrence like this, an owl in the daytime and a UFO, would mean that some archetype is activating that person's perceptual apparatus to to experience both the owl and the UFO simultaneously. And if we're sensitive enough, we could begin to ponder what the underlying archetype might be that gives rise to these two experiences. So
0: just to clarify, you are looking at the link between the owl and the UFO. I was thinking that the synchronicity was that this gentleman was listening to Mike Cleland Mm -hmm. speak about owls and UFOs, and then saw an owl and a UFO.
2: So that would be the third element. Okay. Um, They would all be co-occurrences. None, it would be very difficult to have a link here that we could say was causal, unless, Mike, you're very powerful. Um, listening to your book wouldn't create UFOs and owls. So this was driving home some sort of uh, experience for this person that probably means they have to sit and ponder what all of these things at the same time might mean. Why would so, they be listening to Mike's uh, podcast at that time? What was their interest there? Certainly, that could have heightened their awareness of what was in the field outside of them.
0: But, because other yeah. people, sorry to jump in, but other yeah. people were on that same road, right? Right, Mike, were right. there right. other yeah, cars?
2: Yeah, there were plenty
1: of other cars. It was rush hour. It was late afternoon it Was people were coming home from work, and he... You know, I pressed him on it a little bit. You know, um, there was traffic. Traffic was moving. And I created a little image um, and worked with him. You know, so this was not, this was like a giant football field sized uh, uh, flying saucer hovering above uh, like a a sewage treatment plant that that, uh, then floated up into the sky. And everyone on the road should have seen it. But his sense Mm -hmm. was that the traffic just kept on moving along everyone kept driving as if it was normal so he didn't have an answer but but it plays out which is not uncommon within the UFO reporting that um you know a UFO shows up and only one person is capable of seeing it you know when everyone when you know every car in the freeway should have come to a screeching halt
0: so Dr. James you used a word that I would like you to explain to us You said associations, and this is what we do in analysis when we bring a dream in to our analyst, they ask us for associations. And that is why I cringe when I hear or see people who want to analyze someone's dream without the dreamers input, because Mm -hmm. it is about our personal associations. So there are two things we do in dream analysis Associations and amplification. Amplification. So would you explain that?
2: Sure. So a person brings in a dream and the first step is getting associations for as many of the elements in the dream as possible. That would include not just uh, persons and places and things, but also um, feeling tone of the dream or... Uh, connections in the dream that may have particular relevance for the person, associatively, and that that basically brings to the surface generally material from the dreamer's personal life that perhaps uh, are worth talking about analytically. Then amplifications uh, kind of kick in when. We've exhausted the personal associations, but there are still uh, what I would call enigmatic elements of the dream that don't seem to have any personal relevance to the dreamer, but do have a certain attractive energy or draw interest. And that's when we move into the archetypal. And it's always a both and with Jung, as Mm -hmm. you know, nothing is ever only one thing. And sometimes that that can get misunderstood because, you know, people might say, well, it really, I wasn't really talking to my sister who's been dead for 12 years. Uh, it really was something else. No, no, you were talking to your sister and it was something else as well. The amplification may be different than right the association.
0: So if I dream of an owl and my niece dreams of an owl, what owls mean to me is Mm -hmm. very different from what owls mean to her. So my associations with owls now would be UFOs Mm -hmm. and, and Mike Mm Cleland and everything that that we're talking about here today. But with my niece who knows nothing of this, if Mm -hmm. I ask her what her associations are with owls, I don't know what she would say, but it would be very different from my associations with owls. And that, that factors into the interpretation of a dream.
2: Yes, it would. It would. But also, you know, if I could go further into Mm -hmm. this particular example, because I think it's, it's an amazing one. And, you know the owl. If I look at it in terms of archetypal symbolism, and this is in no no way exhaustive, but the first thing that pops into my mind would be the goddess Athena, and who's referred to as gray-eyed Athena uh, in the Iliad, well, in other other writings as well. And Athena is the goddess of wisdom and war. And I've been thinking a lot about this, uh, relative to uh, your book, Mike. And your books. And Athena is kind of dual. Because we think of wisdom as that overarching sort of awareness of underlying meanings. And then war is about conflict. It's about conquest. uh, And those two things don't seem to go together. But if we hold the tension between those two, we can then go even deeper to what might be the archetypal ground that caused the ancient Greeks to attribute both wisdom and war to the goddess Athena. And so it, it immediately becomes more complex and richer.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and uh, Athena was also the goddess of arts and crafts, and I think she was the goddess of mathematics, too. Um and the and the lore of the owl, uh, it's very difficult to say, because. but that's the, one thought is that the um, Parthenon simply um, had owls roosting in it. So that, that was where the association with owls came huh. for, that's great. for Athena, that it just, they simply, and it was the little owl. That's a very specific owl that she's associated with. It's not a North American owl. It's a simple, small little owl. It's about seven inches tall. It's a very normal looking owl. Um, but it's not a big, strong, bold owl like you know, like a great gray owl or a bighorned owl. That's a you know, kind of a tiny, little, cute owl that's she's associated with. So when she's pictured with an owl, it's surprisingly small. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's statues where there's an owl often on her wrist. Um, yes. So, yeah, this is and this is you know that so Athena that that very simplistic wisdom thing stretches right to present day, where when little kids graduate from or they you know leave. Kindergarten or first grade or something like that. There's little owls thumbtack to their bulletin board and such with little graduation caps on. That's that traces right back to the, <laughs> to the wisdom. So so I agree. Yeah, it's a it's a um like I'm very cautious to try to parse out the meaning of a myth because that's almost that's almost right. well, you, yeah. you have to touch on that just at some deeper level in a way.
3: Well,
0: and yeah. for me with the me linking the owl with the ufo i think of ufos as well they both fly an owl and a ufo Mm -hmm. both fly and then to me an owl is known for its to me big round eyes Mm -hmm. and typically on ufos as they're depicted you we see round lights now they don't all have round lights but for the most part they do so if you see an owl at night it's flying and i think the only thing you'd really see are its eyes maybe not but i love the yellow eyes and mike on both of your book covers of owls and you did those illustrations didn't Mm -hmm. you on the messengers and stories of from the messengers they have these beautiful bright yellow eyes well think about the bright lights on a UFO. So. Those are my associations and of 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 tying those two together. And um, Mike, I also heard you mention that owls have this sinister quality to them. I mean, they can be cute and they could have little caps on. And I've even mentioned, uh, it's in my notes, I don't know if I mentioned it on your show, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the land of make-believe, X the owl. He's so cute and I loved seeing him when I was a child. But but there there's also this. Do you remember talking about this, Mike? Oh, this oh yeah, sinister, I mean yeah. owls
1: are predators, full on predators. Mm-hmm. I mean they're they're, you know, it's like looking into the eyes of a you know of a tiger or something like that. So mm. they are um. And 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 not all owls have yellow eyes. So um like the barred owl, which is one of the larger North American owls, has a total black eye, inky black. There's no there's no color at all in it.
0: Is it barred b a r d or barn?
1: There's a barn owl too, and they have—I'm um, pretty sure they have all black eyes. A barn owl and a barred owl, B-A-R-R-E-D, B-A-R- I think. I'm sorry, spell that again. B-A-R-R-E-D, barred. Oh, okay. So, and they have little—I think it's because they have little bars, little stripes on their on their um, the way their feathers are, and uh, not like a barred, like a like a smart owl like that. Not, oh, not like, yeah. You know, yeah, they're very common, and they actually have the loudest call, the loudest North American owl call. So when people describe like a really loud call, they'll hear that's usually a barred owl, and they're pretty common in North America. So, um, but the uh, but they have these inky black eyes. So yeah, so you're looking at a predator now. Also, owls have um, owls cannot move their eyeballs right and left, right? They they don't they they truly don't have eyeballs. We have little spheres in our skull
2: okay. that
1: can rotate side to side so we can have our head locked in position and we can look right and left to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Owls, because of their night vision, the shape of their eyeballs is is not a sphere, it's a cylinder so they cannot move their eyes right and left. And what they have adapted um, that it's just because of the um, it allows them to gather more light at night, just the different shape of their life, uh, excuse me, the different shape of the cornea versus their retina in the back of the eye um they have developed this eerie what's called head stability that's when you see most birds are kind of twitchy and kind of nervous appearing. Owls mm. appear totally serene because they their necks move in this eerily fluid way. so you have something very arresting a bird that cannot move its eyeballs and that moves its neck very smoothly unlike any other bird and it um and then you know they are you know predators, so they okay. they have that that intensity. So when I get reports, you know, people it's very common for me, to you know, people say, "Oh, like I saw an owl in my tree in the yard, and it was it got really scared." That's that's normal. That's the same way okay. of saying like if you saw uh, like a coyote or wolf in your yard, you would be scared. Mm-hmm. Anytime a predator has a different power over a right. over a you know bunny rabbit or a deer.
0: Right. So, Dr. James, how would you bring in the symbolism of the owl? And maybe now we can talk about the difference between a sign and a symbol of how the owl is this companion of Athena, but yet it's also this predator, uh, which goes back to you talking about how Athena was dual, goddess of
2: wisdom and war. Mm
0: -hmm. So, a sign and a symbol, what's the difference?
2: I think that what Mike just did uh, took owl and moved it from sign, which maybe uh, because of his writing, people would think, oh, owl UFOs. That would be at the level of sign. But then when Mike goes into sort of the anatomy of the owl's eye, and I think Mike, isn't it true that the owl is the only bird with both eyes facing in the same direction?
1: I, I'm pretty sure there. there's other predators that have a, a eyes a little closer to the front okay. of their face, but owls most, uh, most certainly do, and that's they're also the only um, Egyptian hieroglyph that is seen head-on. All the other hieroglyphs are seen in profile.
2: Mm, Sidewise, that's right. Um, so when you start getting into these details, we're moving into the realm of symbol, because a sign, imagine that a sign is something that has one arrow pointing in one direction. A symbol You could think of it almost as a sunburst of arrows pointing in many, many directions so that a symbol draws together many, many, many different attributes, many, many different um, elements and has all of those attributes cohere in into one expression. And that is the symbol. And, When we look at things symbolically, we immediately move into the realm of depth, and we move into the realm of uh, a network of meaning that is called up with the presence of the symbol. Examples are, you know, like the the flag would be an example of a symbol. Uh, It's a sign, right? If you see a flag somewhere, if you see the American flag somewhere, that usually means this is either in the United States or the property of the United States or the United States is participating here. That would be the flag as a level of sign. Okay. But when you reflect on the uh, meaning of the flag, why are there 13 stripes? Why are there, you know, 50 stars? When you listen to the Star-Spangled Banner, which gives a little bit of the history of the flag uh, and its meaning, now we're moving into the realm of symbol. And the same thing can be both a sign and a symbol. But symbol has many more ramifications. Symbol, A symbol throws us into a web of meaning.
0: When we were talking about archetype earlier, I neglected to ask you, Dr. James, what the difference is between an archetype and a metaphor.
2: That's a really uh, good question. And it, it moves us into uh, a deeper understanding of Jung's mind. Um, so the archetype is a fundamental organizing principle found in the collective unconscious that makes its presence known through a variety of ways, including the creation of experience in the life of an individual. A metaphor is something that calls to mind or has resonance with or refers to something else. And all of the metaphoric associations generally refer to an underlying archetypal ground. We, you know, we don't think very metaphorically in our society today.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's why metaphor is something that's taught in uh, literature classes, or maybe psychology classes, or philosophy classes. Um, but you know, we live at a time when. Something is what something is. We're very restrictive. It's almost like there's a movement to restrict the capacity for association and amplification.
0: And I would Uh, love to just jump in here just really quickly. The use of the word literal and literally mm -hmm. has
3: totally
0: mm -hmm. blown up over the past few years. Right?
2: Yes, right. Yeah. I am not literally burning with anger. (laughs) because i wouldn't do it for very long uh i'd be a bunch of ashes but you know all of this refer relates to the fact that jung's sort of mindset was much more medieval than modern freud was a modernist freud's thinking was extremely modern very reductive very causally related very powerful but very modern Jung, on the other hand, was medieval. And in the Middle Ages, uh, there, there came to be what we call, now call the doctrine of signatures. And this is a doctrine that says, for example, the, the middle, medieval healers would say, well, this plant and this animal and this color and this perfume and this whatever all are sacred to the planet Jupiter. Or the goddess uh, Aphrodite, or whatever. The, the organization of the natural world was much less taxonomic, that's our organization, and much more metaphoric in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And that mindset is what allows Jung to say and do what he does in ways that to a modern um, sensibility can seem very strange. Yeah. I remember when uh, I started my training as a Jungian analyst and one of my colleagues at the university told another colleague uh, that who I was friends with, but this colleague didn't know of my interest in Jung. And she reported back to me that he said to her, can a Jungian, how could any thinking person be a Jungian? Mm. And I just laughed. But the, the idea that the ideas that Jung puts forth are so different. Yeah. It views the world as organized so differently than our modern worldview. Which and our modern worldview is incredibly powerful. I always say anyone who's over 50 owes a lot to the modern worldview. Because that the the idea of experimentation and controlling variables mm-hmm. and replication. I mean, these are very powerful tools, but they're not the only tools. It's more of a both and that, you know, the empirical method is very powerful. And so is what we might call the um, Jung's method, which is more uh, experiential rather than empirical and more one off than once I get it, I can apply it here and there and everywhere.
1: Hey, let me let me add one little thing yeah. here. So um you know I have been at the receiving end of these owl stories now and I you know I'm asking for them. I ask for them on podcasts. If people have an unusual owl story, I want to hear it. I put it on my website and if you google UFO owls, I'm the first thing that comes up. So anyone anywhere in the world is going to find me if they have a weird UFO and owl experience and they want to look oh, it up okay. online. So and it, and it blends over into all kinds of other things, into meditation, into um, death, you know, so there's other powerful human experiences, not just UFOs that, that are seemingly tied into the owl. So what's happening is people are calling me, contacting me, and asking for my help. I mean, they're, they're saying, like, I have this experience. I don't understand it. I am asking for your help. And I have unwittingly been sort of thrust into this place of being a an expert, which I I'm still just as baffled as as I can, but I, I feel like I've got enough underlying stories to, sh- you know, to, to talk with these folks. And so what I'm, my sense, my very strong sense, and I argue this as the books go on, like as my ideas f- uh, coalesce a little more, that the... Owl experience, the experience of the owl in a highly charged human experience, whether that's death, whether that's UFO contact, whether that's an initiation. People often see owls at a time of initiation, Um, that there once would have been a time in the medieval ages... Or the medieval time period or let's just say turn the clock back you know 500 years and if we were out on the plains of South Dakota and you were a young brave and you had a powerful experience with an owl you would have had a place to go to you could have walked to the village shaman and and asked him mm-hmm. what this meant now w- we presently don't have that so I've turned into the person that people contact if they have an owl experience and and I fight a little bit, and I struggle a little bit to give a good answer. So I'm I'm using terms like totem animal, or spirit animal, or the resonance of the owl and to try to sum this up. And so I, I certainly have strong feelings about what that totem meaning might be. Um, and what I'm also, my sense is that people have had these experiences all throughout the ages. People have had powerful owl experiences all throughout human history since we stepped out of the caves. And we had a, we had a mythology, we had folklore that, that, that we could f- understand that, um, in a previous time, presently, in this time, we don't have that framework. And, and people, when they do have a powerful owl experience, are adrift. And, and I feel that one of the things I'm proud of and happy with in the work is that, um, my books, in a way, will, bring a little solace to those people who are adrift. And that's, that's actually been sort of the, um, you know, my sense of mission in a way has, has been to, to pull follow that path to make sure that, that I'm, that I'm, there's some sort of healing quality to these books.
0: Dr. James.
2: Yeah. I would say that quite a few things came into the train station of my mind, as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, Mike, you said they come to you as though you're the expert. You are. And you're not the expert because of anything that you've said or done claiming to be an expert. But whatever the archetypal ground is of the expert and the seeker, that dyad, is activated between you and the people that send you the stories of the owls. And... That's very powerful. And as you reflect with them on mythology of the owl or, you know, the the traditions, the shamanic traditions in various cultures, you actually are healing them, helping them heal. Because, one, you're taking them seriously. But, two, they have already done I would say 75% of the work because I'm sure that there are many people who have owl experiences and then the appearance of something strange in the sky and they just dismiss it. So for people who go, wait a minute, I just, there's this thing in the sky and I just saw this owl. And then they Google. And as you say, they come to you. The fact that they would go to the, to the computer to, Search for something to help them means they're already open. And what you do is you step in with them into this very powerful archetypal field that brings healing for them and deepens your awareness of your mission. I like it that you use that word because it feels like that.
1: Yeah, and I feel like I've gotten much better as the years have gone on at you know, having a dialogue with these people who are mm-hmm. who are seeking my help,
2: right, right, and and you know that's the other thing. Uh, we be, we become so boundaryed in terms of where you go to get help, and you know, well, is it that person? Do they have the right credentials? Do they have they written the right books? Have they gone through the right whatever? That's all. That's all secondary. You know. The healing comes right here, right now. And when that's constellated in the archetypal ground, it will occur, regardless of who's doing it. And I know that that could could seem very dangerous, because there's a lot of charlatanism out there. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what emerges here and now, when someone is experiencing suffering, and they approach someone that they believe can help them. Mm -hmm. Both parties are drawn into that healing, that archetypal ground of healing. And healing will occur.
0: I appreciate that. And I would like to move on to to further look into the concept of synchronicity. Because Mm -hmm. I, I would like to focus on that as much as possible, because it is a word... As I said, that is bandied about. I see out there used incorrectly, and as far as not just used incorrectly, because we covered that, but what it means once a synchronicity has occurred. I get the sense that people think people think that it makes them special, or it's a sign that they're going to win the lottery. I mean, I've heard all kinds of outrageous uh, claims around synchronicity, and that might be fine for them, but for me, I would like to get to the bottom of it. And so if synchronicities are products of the unconscious, they occur a lot more frequently than maybe we're even aware of, then what do we do, Dr. James, with a synchronicity?
2: Well, one of the most important functions of a synchronicity like so many other aspects of Jung's psychology is to put the ego in its proper relationship to the collective unconscious and especially to the archetype that Jung uh, eventually came to call the self. And another way of saying that is the role of the synchronicity, just like the role of almost anything else that Jung covered, is to relativize the ego so that the ego comes to understand that it's an extremely important participant in this life, but it is not the master. It isn't in charge. And a synchronicity taken appropriately is a beautiful way for that to happen. It's, it's as though uh, the collective unconscious is bringing us opportunities to move us closer and closer to wholeness. The term that Jung used for that is individuation. Um, Because usually a synchronicity is met with a response of awe or wonder or sometimes fear because it is something that's happening that has very deep meaning, but I cannot discern a cause.
3: Right,
0: there's no explanation uh, there for There is it.
2: no causal explanation. So basically in his essay, Jung talks about the different ways that psyche uh, links events that occur in time. One very powerful way is through causality. And that's a very important way that things are linked. You know, I dial your phone number and I talk to you. That's, that's a cause and effect link. Another way that, that events co-occur are simply they just co-occur in time. So we're having this conversation now, and there's probably someone walking down the street in front of my house, maybe uh, walking down the street in front of both of your houses. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, there's no meaning link there. There's no, I, we didn't cause those people to walk at that time. So that's just called a temporal connection. But then this third kind of connection, the synchronistic connection, is where there doesn't seem to be causality. Causality is out of the picture. And yet these things are occurring and there's a felt sense of meaning in the the one who is experiencing it. And von Franz said in one of her interviews, sometimes she could see no purpose for synchronicities, when her analysands would bring them in, except to prove to the analysand that the psyche was real, that the deep psyche knows things that you, the ego, don't know, and fundamentally, it's to bring the ego to a place of of humility
3: mm-hmm.
2: vis-à-vis the forces in the psyche both in the so-called outer world and so-called inner world that are very powerful and very present
0: now I, i just for the listeners who are not familiar with jung's concept of the collective unconscious you've mentioned it a couple of times and i would like for you to and by the way Dr. James and I did an episode of Speaking of Jung, I believe it's episode 56, just on Jung's terms and concepts, and I will provide a link to that in the show notes. But if you would, right here for us now, uh, Dr. James, define the collective unconscious and how it differs from the personal unconscious?
2: Yes, sure. So we have the ego, which is I, you know, the ego is the center of consciousness, and the ego basically experiences what we call reality. And reality just comes at us. You know, it's not well organized and it, you know, it's just sort of there. And the ego does its best to process what's coming at it in the moment, in real time, so to speak, but it would be impossible to process everything. So inevitably, some material gets gets in but isn't processed and that goes into what freud called the unconscious and the unconscious is a repository according to freud now of unprocessed material from the so-called outer world that is is kind of put there for later processing. That processing can occur through dreams, it can occur through analytic work, it can occur in a variety of ways. Jung agreed with Freud on that point, but what was curious to Jung was that that unconscious, which Jung came to call the personal unconscious. So Jung began to discern different layers, if we want to use that metaphor, in the unconscious. The personal unconscious is populated with all of that material but what interested jung was how well organized the personal unconscious is and if it were simply a repository of undealt with material it would probably look like my basement (laughs) where a lot of things are just there Mm -hmm. and i'll deal with it some other time but it's they're not in labeled boxes they're not necessarily even on shelves and yet when jung investigated the the unconscious the personal unconscious it was well organized it was organized in sort of clusters that jung referred to as complexes and jung wondered how do these how does this organization occur if in fact the world of our experience is haphazard and mm-hmm. and fairly random so he that was one of the of the sort of hints that he took there were many others that led him to um, posit a layer of the unconscious that he called the collective unconscious because it is not dependent on any personal experience. It simply is a sort of an organizing structure in the deep part of the psyche that exerts an influence, speaking metaphorically again, upward so that as these various unprocessed bits come in, the collective unconscious acts like a librarian almost. Okay, you go over here, you go over here, you go over here. And all of the contents of the personal unconscious become organized according to the, the uh, archetypes that are in the collective unconscious. And the archetypes themselves in the collective unconscious actually get their costuming from material in the personal uh, sphere of experience of the individual. So the collective unconscious refers to that layer of the unconscious common to all humanity across all space and across all time. And at the level of the collective unconscious, and here's where Jung's theory becomes very difficult for the modern mind, at the level of the collective unconscious, we are all connected across all time and throughout all space. And if you accept that as a hypothesis, it allows you to understand more deeply psychological phenomena and psychological suffering. Yeah. Human suffering, period.
0: Maybe this is a good time to bring in the dream or the vision that mike had in the tent of the mandala
1: sure i can tell that story that's just, that was actually a big reason i when uh, laura brought this up i was like ooh i could like the mandala to me is a and this is just google research i had i didn't know this i just googled the word mandala and, and young came up when i was looking into my own experience
0: Dr. James, did you get the images that I sent you this morning? I did. I'm
2: looking at them right now. Okay,
0: great. So, Mike, you had emailed me your illustrations of what you're about to tell us, and I sent them to Dr. James so that he could have a look at them before we started recording this morning.
1: Well, this goes back to um, the spring of 2010, and I was, uh, this is, to tell the story properly takes about a, you know, well, good grief, it takes an hour to tell the story properly. Oh, I'll race goodness. through okay. it a little bit. So right. uh, I was traveling in the Southwest with my girlfriend at the time. Her name was Natasha. And she was from Germany. And she came over to America specifically so we could drive around the West in the spring and go camping and, and you know, go to the national parks and everything like that. So, um, and she has someone, I met her at a UFO conference. She has like i've i'm more comfortable taking a few steps back it's tough to call someone a ufo abductee but i can say that there's this lesser tier sort of the maybe people is the term i'm using it's kind of an imperfect term but she certainly qualifies someone who's had a lifetime of unusual experiences that imply some sort of ufo contact it's hard to it's hard to know for sure but uh we were traveling around we were having a wonderful time we were supposed to be driving back to my house in Idaho at that point, but um, the car broke down and we had to get a rent-a-car. There's a funny story about that. It felt like we were stuck in this town. So we, um, the night the car broke down, just before we went to the tent, we sent the tent up in a wooded area outside of a very small town, which is Dolores, Colorado. And then we went back into town to eat. And that night, she was Natasha was very emotional and very tense, and something was up. We went. I didn't know about it at the time, so we I, I couldn't figure out what it was. She didn't know what it was. We went to the tent and it was about. We went to sleep right away, and and then uh, we both woke up screaming, like experiencing terror. I I've actually used the term synthetic fear because it was like irrational fear. I worked for decades doing outdoor work and i've spent a lot of time in a tent i've never ever ever felt anything like that in my life Mm. so Mm. the way i describe it is if a grizzly bear had ripped through the tent and put its jaws around my throat i would not have been as frightened as i was in that moment it felt like it felt like the like my soul was at the precipice of being extinguished um, Wait, and you
0: both woke up at we, the same time?
1: She woke. She and I both woke up screaming at the exact same moment. We were both experiencing the identical form of fear.
0: And you were next to each other in the we're tent?
1: Just touching elbows, side by side. Our okay. sleeping pads were right next to each other. We were okay. experiencing the same form of fear. Um, I asked her, what, what happened? What happened? What happened? She said, I saw a face. And mm. then she actually asked, um, do you believe in evil ghosts? And I knew that the scene was totally like, like we were both so freaked out. I didn't want to say, "Yeah, I believe in evil ghosts." So I said, "No, no." <laughs> I just was trying to calm <laughs> the scene down. So, so like it just, and I we talked for a little bit, and I we were I was like panicking, like like panicking, full on panicking. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing there. There was nothing to see. Nothing. To, there was no noise outside. There was no. So there came a moment when we both went from full on adrenaline freak out to just like, click, we were asleep. And then now what I, what happens next is something I call a dream. I don't think it happened, so I'll just tell you what this dream realm felt like. Suddenly I'm I have this elevator up feeling, and I'm floating up off the off the sleeping pad. That's this illustration one in this series here. Um, this is a drawing I did, it's sort of a rough drawing. But I'm floating up off the sleeping pad. I'm f- going up towards the top of the tent, and I look over, and over by Natasha's feet or her knees, I guess, is a I called it a mandala the next morning when I described it. I said it was a floating mandala. And it was about the size of a pizza pan, and it was somewhat translucent. So it, it looked it didn't look like a pizza pan made out of, you know, sheet metal or whatever it is, but mm-hmm. it looked like a kind of a glowing nebulous orb. But it was two-dimensional. It felt like it was a flat, two-dimensional okay. thing floating inside the tent. My very first thought was when I looked at this thing, I thought to myself, I'm floating. I'm floating up, like elevator up. I look over. There's this weird glowing mandala in the tent with us. And I say, that looks like the thing in my eye. I'll get back to that in a minute. But it didn't look anything like the thing in my eye. It looked like a floating pizza pan. So I go up through the roof of the tent, and I don't bump into the tent. And then suddenly I'm in this white realm. I've told this story many times. And I told this to a near-death experiencer, researcher. And it's when I said that, she kind of paused and very dramatically said, "The white realm." So I, so I'm in the, so and I, you're in the white I'm realm. I'm in the white okay. realm, and as I'm floating up, I'm saying, "I have to remember this. I have to remember this. I have to remember this." Somewhere in the midst of this, in the white realm, there's nothing to see. It just this totality of whiteness, just like magical, mystical, endless whiteness. There's no anything there, but that's where I am. And I, and I'm saying to myself, "Am I on a table? Am I on a table? Am I on a table?" And then I hear Natasha with her German accent say, Mike, you're floating. And then I'm back in the tent and I'm asleep. So I don't actually remember coming in the tent. I just, it just felt like, like it felt like being sucked back Mm -hmm. into the tent. And then I slept fine. Now I don't think Natasha does not remember saying, Mike, you're floating. I don't think that really happened, but that is the memory I had of her saying that, but I don't think it really happened. I dismissed this totally as a dream. Well, not quite totally. I, I wanted to sort of cling to it as a dream. So the next morning I asked Natasha, what happened, what happened, what happened last night? We wake up and it's a totally beautiful, this is in Colorado, it's this beautiful morning and the birds are chirping and the sun's shining and it's just this, we're in this field of wildflowers where our tent is set up and it's, and and I'm like, w- what happened last night? What did you see? She said, all I can say is I saw a face. I'm like, oh, that does. you gotta tell me, that doesn't fly. I, I, I want to know what you saw.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: she said, like, what did it look like? And she said, well, it looked like that thing in your eye, that drawing you did that you put on your blog of the thing in your eye, which was exactly what I had said or thought in my mind in that kind of dreamscape the night before. So I'm like, "Like, wait a minute. And I hadn't told her that yet. And then I said, where was it? I had the sense that it was right up close to her face. Like somehow she saw, and she pointed to the spot where the floating pizza pan was, the floating mandala was. Mm-hmm. So we leave the tent that morning. I literally walk around the tent, like walk through the woods. I'm looking for a spot where like a flying saucer had landed. Right. <laughs> you know, like a big burn mark in the grass. I didn't find anything. It was this idyllic, perfect morning. And so we we were stuck down there for a few more days because we had to rent a car. Anyway, it was we had a wonderful trip. And... I knew a friend and she also has had UFO experiences. And I said, we're down in this part of the four corners area. I know you've been down here a lot. What should we do? And she said, you go get a, go to a sweat lodge. So we, she told us the fellow to talk to, and it was nearby in Canyon de Chez, which is just across the Arizona border, um, in the four corners area down in that corner where, where, mm-hmm. um, that part of the Southwest. So we had this wonderful, beautiful experience of, of, uh, having a sweat lodge, on the Navajo Reservation, uh, right near Canyon de Chelly, and it was this powerful, beautiful experience for both Natasha and I. So there's this, um, you know, I, like a, a a shamanic ceremony that we got to experience. That I's interconnected with this. Now, um, it had been so that was March, I think March or April of 2010. In the autumn, in October of 2009. Oh, this relates back to the the conference that. Uh, Whitley Strieber held in Joshua Tree.
0: Yeah, and I I just want to jump in here. Mike and I were both at that conference. We didn't know each other at the time. Um, It was held in Joshua Tree, California, at the Joshua Tree Retreat Center, which I love. And Mike, you are now the third person that was at that conference that I've had here on this quarantine series of Speaking of Young. So continue yeah it was a great conference yeah
1: so um <clears throat> after the conference I did this thing I slept in the desert I actually climbed a big granite pillar in um uh, Joshua tree National Park and and slept outside at night on the top of this big pillar wow. and I do this thing where I when I sleep out sometimes um, I'll I'll basically say listen I'm open I'm receptive to whatever the universe has to give me mm-hmm. um, and oftentimes I'll have a powerful conversation uh, I was going to use the term synchronicity. I will have a meaningful coincidence. I will, or I'll have a powerful dream, but nothing happened. A couple of days later, okay. I was in Southern California, and I was um, uh, in a park in Pasadena, and I was looking at the sun. I just had a couple hours to kill. The friend I was staying with was was um, actually her husband was coming over to sign the divorce papers so she oh, said my. she said oh don't come over right away give me a few give me an hour and i said no problem i like i'll give you so i i laid down in the in a park in pasadena and i and i kind of drifted off to sleep a little bit and just you know that moment when you kind of squint into the sun and you can kind of see the like the twinkles and the halos in your eyes when you're looking into the sun like on a beach or on a sunny day there emerged a an image in my eye of a of my, I'm gonna say it a, a weird image of a face in the eye, and that is image um three in this in this series of illustrations I did. so I'm bald and I have big eyes and and it, so this image looked like a like a little seated Buddha maybe it's kind of two intersecting rings and it had its halo quality to it. You know what it had? It had the quality of, you know, the garish sort of Hindu paintings that had this, they have this psychedelic halo that surrounds the deity. Um, it had that kind of vibe to it. It was very tough to, to to transfer. I did a pencil illustration, which is a little more accurate, which is illustration, let me just roll down, illustration four in the series. That's pretty close to what it looked like in black and white. It was very I will, psychedelic. I want
0: to say, I will, Mike, I will upload these images that you've drawn if that's okay with oh, you
1: absolutely sure
0: to the website uh to my website here on this episode page so there will be links to these illustrations of, that mike's referring to in the show notes at speaking if you click on episode q13 you will be able to view them okay
1: wonderful so this image appears in my eye i have a i have a tiny cataract in my right eye and it was in my right eye and it it was the cataract it was a, so it's a basically a flaw in the in the lens of the eye where a milky bit of protein congeals and collects and it 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 has impacted my vision very slightly in my right eye mostly just seeing things at night but um but I could focus on this thing I could focus on it in that kind of quiet peering into the sun state and and it was razor sharp its clarity. So when I got home, I laid down in the living room floor, looked into the sun out the window, squinted my eyes like that, and and then drew it. And that's the pencil drawing. I then tried to create the psychedelic uh, colors that it had. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like looking at the refracted like weirdness of the of a, the glass on the thick bottom of a Coke bottle that had that kind of twinkly quality to it. So I, the very first thought was, this looks like an alien, this looks like a death skull and this looks like me. It, the the mm-hmm. image actually had little sideburns on it, which I had at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like, I, my first thought was like, oh my God, like I have to, I have to put this on my blog and I am the only person who can see it. So like, I got nothing, I got no proof at all that this exists, but it's just like, I can see it totally clearly. Nobody mm-hmm. but me can see it. It eventually, about a month later, it faded away. It's gone. There's nothing to see now, but that was the image that Natasha said she saw. She said, I saw a face. Okay. And then that was the what I sensed I saw. I saw a um a circle with a little dot in the center of it. Um, and that's what I saw, but in my mind I said, Oh, that looks like the thing in my eye. Now, years later, so here's this event in the tent, and it has a this mandala floating there, but I see it as something else. I see it as like, I don't see it, but I say it in my mind that it looks like the face in my eye, which is me. Natasha says she saw a face. And I said, what does it look like? She said, it looked like the thing in your eye. So it's like, it was weird. It was like seriously weird. And then, um, years later, a person contacts me. And this is a fellow who I will say has had UFO contact experience. He contacts me and says, you know, that illustration you did that pencil illustration on your site of the that you drew of the thing in your eye that is a vesica pisces and a vesca pisces is on some it's a it's the intersection of two circles and if you uh overlap one circle with the other circle so the outside diameter touches the exact center of the circle next to it you get that um sort of almond shape you know the jesus fish shape so by you know there's people who research um sacred geometry and things like that. And they would say that this is the foundation for much of the core sacred geometry that, that ties into all kinds of things. So uh, for instance, the, um, and I'll just go, I'll just jump ahead. There's a, oop, I think I put it in there. Maybe I didn't, but there, the image of the tree of life, or excuse me, the flower of life uh, is a um, a collection of these vesica pisces overlapping, overlapping, overlapping. And so I'm in this tent and I see this like this piece of sacred geometry. Then another person gets back to me at a different time, and he says, you know that image, that pizza pan image? He's looking at something else. He's looking at the the image I drew of the pizza pan. He said, that's called the monad. That is a Pythagorean symbol of what was called the monad. And it's got a a bunch of definitions. It's sort of, it's the the source or the source event or the sort of the, the, the totality. In a way, like, that's a very easy way to say God. And then also um, in um, astrology, the monad, that's the symbol you would assign to, to the sun in our sky, in our solar system. Mm-hmm. So I have this experience in the tent. I see a mandala, which I did a simple little bit of Google research, and it comes up. The mandala is, um, like Carl Jung said, I just stole this one, half a sentence, uh, the psychological expression of the totality of the self. Mm-hmm. And the mandala that I saw, I said, oh, that's the face in my eye, which is me. And then the mandala image that I saw wasn't just a true circle. It was a um, a monad, which which is another piece of like ancient symbolism. So this one event in the tent ties into this this weird collection of ancient symbolism. And then to make things even more complex, later I did a talk in England. I I showed the image of the face in my eye. told the story I just told here. I read the quote from Jung, the psychological expression of the totality of the self. And I said that Jung noted that some of his patients were spontaneously drawing mandalas. Mm-hmm. A woman came out of the audience. She was actually one of the speakers. She came up to me after the talk. She opened up her notebook and she said, I've been spontaneously drawing these. I don't know why I'm drawing. I just started drawing these recently. I had a conversation with her. She is a uh, past life hypnotherapist. Her name is Lorraine Flaherty. I'll make a long story very short. I she, We talked. She said, you should have a past life session. I think it'd be helpful for you. I have suffered terribly from clinical depression uh, since the age of 12. I think I was 53 when I talked to Lorraine Flaherty. and we spent about three hours where I was under hypnosis. This magical story emerged. I don't know what to think of it. It was it was a, supposedly a past life. I'm cautious because I simply don't know, but but a story emerged. The power of this story was so strong, I sat up in the chair after that event, and I essentially said, I am cured. And I have not been depressed in what is now uh, six-plus years. So that has never happened to me since the age of 12. So here's this conglomeration of intertwined, inter-knotted, yeah. you knotted me- uh, overlapping stories that, that all ties into this mandala.
0: You actually tell that past life regression you reenact it word for word in the reading of one of your books so where can people hear that
1: that is from the book hidden experience and that is um that's available as an audiobook i read that aloud it's the hardest thing i've ever done in my life
0: i heard it And and that's chapter 17
1: chapter 17 is the is the is uh it's chapter 14 Chapter 17 chapter is the other hypnotherapy session that I had uh, where where the, the little story emerged at the end, which we talked about in the last episode that you did on my podcast, yes. where I said the owls aren't important. The owls are a sign on a door. That mm-hmm. came from chapter 17.
0: Okay. So both of those can be heard in your book, Hidden Experience, the audio book. Uh, I will provide a link to that in the show notes. And it's wonderful that you did these audiobooks yourself instead of having uh, someone else read them. So you actually reenact that those sessions. It's not the audio from those sessions, but you you are going back and you're, you're you read what you said, right?
1: I also tried to very carefully mimic my own sense of emotion. Yeah. There's like Emotions, like I yes. was I listened very carefully to the. Um, which is very poor sound quality. The little recording that took place sure. under both of those hypnosis sessions. But I was trying my best to recreate the the tone of my voice and the uh, you know. So I was basically using that for reference. Before, okay. You know, so I was listening so, to those simultaneously and then and then speaking the words into the recording.
0: So, Doctor James, we would like your input. On this extraordinary uh, story, there's there's a lot to cover here. So, what yes. w- what jumped out at you?
2: So, uh, yeah, I took a lot of notes. Um, so, let me go to uh, just to, to clarify. The term "self," when Jung writes about it, is specific. The self is the archetypal core of the ego complex. And when Jung uses the word self, he uses it in a very different way <clears throat> than we use it in common uh, conversation. And, you know, I, you had mentioned that I started out uh, in mathematics. Mm-hmm. That, that was what my undergraduate degree is. And in mathematics, terms are well-defined. So when you use a term, whether I use it, in geometry or set theory or calculus or whatever, that term is going to mean exactly the same thing. Psychology, unfortunately, is not like that. (laughs) And so the word self, you know, there's self magazine, which is all about um, how to make yourself wonderful. That's not (laughs) what Jung means, all right? Right. Um, So the totality of the self is where we experience our wholeness. It's where we receive our wholeness. It's the origin and end of our wholeness. But not only us, the self is that place where Jung never says myself or yourself is the self. And the spontaneous drawings of mandalas, uh, Jung pointed out often occurred When people were experiencing deeply dissociative, deeply dysregulating life experiences. So when their life seemed to be falling apart, or perhaps they they were having an inrush of unconscious material that was really um, disturbing, maybe even disturbing their connection to what is consensus reality and what is uh, fantasy, mandalas emerge and serve as anchors for uh, people who are going through particularly difficult uh, events or experiences. And in uh, some religious traditions, most particularly Hinduism, uh, there's a a triad of meditative tools that are referred to as the mantra, tantra, and yantra. The mantra, of course, is a repeated... Um, usually auditory uh, series of syllables or words. Uh, Tantra is certain behaviors or movements. And yantra is the prescribed um, meditation on certain mandalas. And all of these are designed in the Hindu tradition to bring people to a greater sense of their connection to the divine realm. So there's so much here. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. So let me. First of all, the mandala first appeared to you, Mike, in the whatever this was, you know, dream or whatever. After you and Natasha had awoken, simultaneously screaming. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And that's when. So in the dream, did she see the mandala or?
1: It's, it's a little weird because she, we woke up. Yeah. The way I remember it is she screamed. I started screaming. So she screamed first. We both woke up. Uh, I said, what happened? She said, I saw a face. I never could quite get a good answer. We were both sort of panicking and then we fell asleep. And then I had the elevator up feeling and I saw the floating mandala. So oh. there's, a, there's a lag of about seemingly 10, 15 minutes between her waking, screaming, and then me seeing it in this kind of dream realm floating.
2: Yeah, yeah. But you had said that you were probably more frightened than you had ever been.
1: Hands down, unquestionably.
2: And she said she saw a face. She said, do you believe in evil ghosts? And then you said something about panic
1: is that correct? I was panicking I was certainly you panicky my yeah. response was panicky like I, I, I
2: that's I, why I want it because the word panic refers us archetypally to the the god image pan the god of wild things and it struck me that you were in the wilderness in a tent and you were feeling the energies that mythology associates with this particular God. So panic, uh, James Hillman has written about this. Uh, panic is connected to that, uh, that archetypal ground that we refer to as the God Pan, that wild quality. And from that, you know, what, what can we do? What's going to anchor me? in If I'm in the realm of, of Pan, if I'm doing Pan's dance, which is panic. The stabilizing force is going to be this mandala image, which is very powerful. And you know, there's so many associations. You have any associations to the white disc?
1: The way I, uh, I mean, I'm a UFO researcher.
2: <laughs> okay. That's about it. Because, you know, I was thinking there's so many, I was raised Roman Catholic. And there's a particular devotion in the Roman Catholic Church where uh, a host, a Eucharist, is put in a particular glass container, and people are supposed to venerate it. And it is a white circle. Yeah. That's all it is. <laughs> and, of course, the, the um, mytho- I, I, I use the word mythology respectfully, so for all of the listeners, understand that. Because in common usage we use the word myth to mean lie or something Mm -hmm. false i don't use it that way the mythology around the the eucharist in the catholic church is that it is the body of christ and i know mike from your uh, books that christ chris kristen christine there's a rich uh sort of set of connections there for you But it's amazing to me how you saw this and somehow it allowed for all of the material that you were being bombarded with outwardly and inwardly to kind of cohere in some sort of unified uh, pattern or container. It's almost like it created that container. Um, And let me see if I have another question here. So you said that Natasha said it was a face like that thing in your eye. Correct. Yeah, she was describing
1: how, exactly the. Yeah, how the, did she know? Because I had put it on my blog, and I had mm. talked about it. I had written a blog post in it. All I right. I had tried mm. to. I mean, I, I wrote like a thousand, you know, a thousand word essay, on yeah. trying to make sense of you know the events of of uh, sleeping out under the stars, asking for a uh, mm. for help then seeing this uh, image in my eye and and trying to make sense of this kind of caricature of myself at the same time it was a death symbol, at the same time it was a gray alien mm-hmm. and a seated Buddha yeah. with a with a halo around
2: yeah. it. So when I, and I hope when you put these on the website, it'll have the numbers on it because I'm going to refer now to Mike's picture three. Okay. And, you know, you when you just, make it big (laughs) on my computer. Um, This is a beautiful sort of illustration of the relationship between the ego and the self. Because we start with that big circle and then there are the interlocking circles, which we'll get to in a moment. But then out of the circle emerges this sort of Person, And that mirrors exactly the way Jung understands the emergence of the ego from the self, that we, we are in the totality, and gradually as we develop in time in our lives, the ego sort of crystallizes and coalesces, but it comes out of that totality which is represented by this circle. And so that's a, that mandala, if somebody would be drawing that mandala in my office, I would know that we're in safe territory because there is an ego present and there's the self it's bounded, and there's a sort of a, um, a nesting of one in the other,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: which is an extremely powerful, um, artistic expression of the relationship between the ego and the self. And then we get to the Vesica vesica Piscis or Vesica Pisces, however you want to say it. It is a sacred geometric figure, and it's everything that you said. Um, The word actually means fish bladder, (laughs) so it's not quite so romantic. But it is also an image in some traditions especially some pagan and neo-pagan traditions of the divine feminine the source it it has a vaginal quality to it and it's related to images that we see in medieval cathedrals called the shilin a gig i don't know if you're familiar with that um image
1: no no, but i I can imagine it yeah
2: it, it is an image of what looks like a, uh, an old woman, a kind of a hag face, and she's seated with her legs spread, and she's actually opening her vagina. And these are found carved in medieval cathedrals. They were not uncommon at all. And it was, it was a symbol of the origin and end of human experience. So, you know, because we are born and then we die. And the idea is we come from the womb and we return to it transformed. So whatever was going on here, there is, I'm not, I'm very happy to hear and not surprised that you experienced a healing um, of, of what you had suffered mm-hmm. from, the depression, because there's a lot of healing energy in all of these experiences, even the panic, because sometimes what has to happen is a total reorganization of all of the elements of the psyche. And as you know from your experience, panic just completely disorients everything. It's, it like takes everything and tosses it up into the air. And then it comes down in a new hole. And for you, thankfully, it came down in a hole that did not include anymore the feelings of depression. Mm -hmm. It was as though the psychic energy that's trapped in the unconscious, which is how, uh, in Jungian terms, we understand depression, that gets released again. And sort of the, the trembling that's associated with panic can be seen as sort of a breaking up of old defenses so that that psychic energy can emerge.
1: So the first event of seeing, if you put all this on the timeline, is uh, Mm -hmm. the thing in my eye, which happened in October of (laughs) 2009. And then the uh, end event would be the, the past life hypnotherapy session, which took place in the summer of 2014. So there's over or about five years to tell this story, you know, of, of all these disparate events in this overlapping story. And then when, when you were talking, like I had this, I had the image on my screen, I'm sitting here in front of my computer, basically staring at the pencil sketch, which I feel is a little more accurate as far as how it actually looked its black and white. So it didn't capture the crazy colors that it had. But so I'm looking Mm -hmm. like I'm basically staring into the eyes of this illustration that I did, which is in many ways me, and it is. I would have to say, if it was. And so you're you were giving your definition of the self, and I was thinking of myself and my personal self and my my mental health at the time. And and this is like it's. It is not a peaceful image. I mean, this is a very mm-hmm. distressing, haunted image. And so that's that was that was me at the time. Like I was a very distressed, haunted person trying to make mm-hmm. sense of all these experiences. So this is, I think that the caricature, the vibe, in, you know, the the that the, the caricature is imbued with this frightened, haunted, unsettling vibe, and that 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 was me at that point in my life.
2: Uh huh. Uh huh. So that's, you know, that is how the ego experienced it, and time is a function of the ego. So. It took from um, 2009 to 2014 when you had the regression for all of these pieces to come together for you and for you to experience the wholeness. But from the perspective of the deep self or the collective unconscious, um, all of this was happening and was being expressed in that mandala image. It takes a while for the ego to accommodate to it and to ultimately own it. Yeah. Not because the wholeness takes time, but because the ego takes time.
1: Yeah. Wow, okay. My sense is that there's a like a grand chessboard that like defines reality and there's someone smarter than myself kind of putting all the, 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 the game in play and can see out into the future. And s- arranged all the moves on the, this this grand chessboard to play out exactly as it did. So I look at these look at these events in my life, and they play out with this kind of order that mimics of a a carefully constructed novel.
2: But it's your ego that discerns that, and this is why the ego is as important as the self, as important as the grand chess player. It's because there would be people, and I'm sure you know them, who would narrate all of these events, see no connection, and not engage with them in such a way that it would facilitate the embracing of healing. So the ego is both um, uh, necessary but not sufficient.
3: Mm-hmm
2: for what I'll call the Mike project. Okay. I've I've come to, you know, there's the Laura project, the Ken project, the Mike project, the Natasha project. And that is the, I, I call it that because it isn't just you, you are sort of the point of convergence of all of these factors and all of these forces and all of these experiences. And and the attitude of that point of coherence, which I'll call the ego, is as important as any of the events around it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, as we begin to wrap this up, I don't know if there was anything further you wanted to add to that, Dr. James. Uh, I was just scrolling through my notes. And looking for where I was referring to Jung's concept of the self. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I hear a lot in this field is that people using phrases like, you know, it's them, they said, they told me, this was orchestrated, this was staged. And I always wonder, is it them or is it us? Is it the self? and to replace that word them and they with the self
2: mhm well Did i would say... certainly be comfortable with that
0: mm-hmm.
2: right right
0: to say that there is the 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 beings have set this up or you know that that they staged it, uh, it, it is not taking into consideration the unconscious and I think yeah, that yeah. when I read the all the literature in the UFO field, I'm always in the back of my mind thinking these people are not taking into consideration the unconscious,
2: mm-hmm. right. Or another way of looking at it is, and Jung uh, sort of intimates this in his essay, the unconscious is being projected out, yeah. And so, and, and we've done this, you know, the, the mysticism of astronomy and astrology or, you know, to, to project that out and then to behold it and bring it in, uh, can be as effective. Um, the problem is reification, making real, it is nothing, but there's where we get into trouble. Will you say a little
0: bit more about that? What
2: do you mean by that? Um, that, okay, so I project it outwards, I see, let's say a UFO, it makes me feel, um, I don't know, connected in a particular way to realms far beyond what I can even imagine. Mm-hmm. And that is an important event and that event is happening. You know, there's no way that any other person can, uh, deny or uh what's the word i want um, erase an experience that you're having the difficulty comes when it becomes that thing so then that's a ufo or that's an angel or that is you know fill in the blank that's a fairy that's a whatever that's my guardian angel and then that becomes nothing but that and mm-hmm. i start to develop an understanding of myself and the world based on that particular concretization rather than letting it flow. Look at that, that's happening. What's happening in me as a response to that? How do I Mm -hmm. feel? How does that alter my experiences? There's where we we see the dynamism that Jung talked about. Um, Yeah, I mean, I could ramble, but... Well, well, I
3: think that
0: that, yeah, that's very important what you said because uh, I do see and hear Jung's name referred to in the UFO community and it's not usually, I don't know, not usually used in a way where people are looking at how does this apply to me or how do I live Jung's concepts. Mm-hmm. Instead of just what are Jung's concepts, but h- how does it apply to me? How do I live this? Yes, and 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 everything's always outside or up there. Well, what about what's going on, you know, in here? And I know in that that's here. not not an easy thing to do. It's not easy work.
2: No, uh, if it but, were easy, the, everybody. Right, but ahead. the role of synchronicity is to wake us up to that. Uh, I'm I'm remembering Jung's uh, description of a synchronistic event in his office. In fact, it's a classic one that uh, is quoted where he was working with a woman uh, who was fairly resistant to his ideas. Um, And she was was working with it, but wasn't quite sure. Wasn't quite sure if she was going to buy it, lock, stock and barrel. And she had brought in, I believe, a dream where she had been given... A scarab, an Egyptian scarab. And she's recounting the dream to Jung, and there's a, a noise out the window of his consulting room. Jung went to the window, opened it, and grabbed uh, this insect that was sort of scurrying around on the windowsill, and it was a kind of a a beetle that was found in Europe, but that looked a lot like the scarab. And he handed it to the woman and said, here's your scarab. Mm -hmm. And he said that opened her up to a larger perspective. She needed a larger perspective. I think we all need a larger perspective. We need more wonder. We need more enchantment. And that really is the function of the synchronicity. Now, if this woman hadn't understood that, let's say, and she then developed a scarab fetish. Where she would collect scarabs, and they'd be all over her house, and she couldn't go out without her scarab necklace, and she had scarab pictures under her feet in her shoes, and she wore <laughs> scarab underwear. That would be not quite understanding it.
1: Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> what happened to me. I turned into the owl guy, and I like everything <laughs> in my whole world turned into owls. So, um, and I've at the same time been able to take a couple steps back. So. Oh
2: yeah, I wouldn't say it's the same thing, but you know, but that would be. That would be the ego thinking, oh, now I have it. It's the scarab. That's as opposed to, oh, wow, my psyche is real. It knows things that I don't know. And then the ego is in the right relationship to the mystery. I won't even call it the unconscious at this point, because developing the right relationship to the mystery at the core of our being is the process of individuation.
0: There's one more topic I would love for you to touch on before we wrap up, and that is that of the psychoid archetype. When we were talking about synchronicity, I neglected to ask you to expand on that. That is very important.
2: It is. And the way I like to think about it, there's all kinds of um, ways of understanding it. People, This is one of Jung's big ideas. Mm -hmm. For me... Okay, imagine, if you will, a just a completely blank canvas, maybe with things shimmering all on it, okay? And then in that canvas, there begins to emerge dimly a circle. And the circumference of that circle becomes more and more distinct. And then once the circumference is distinct, the center becomes apparent because it's a circle. Now, let's look at that center as the ego, the big circle as psyche. So the ego emerges out of the psyche. But beyond the boundaries of that circle is the rest of the canvas. That boundary in between that dimly defined circle and the rest of the canvas that's the psychoid the psychoid is everything outside of that boundary so it it is the place from which both the instincts come and the archetypes come and then they coalesce and give rise to what we would call human experience so the psychoid is not quite the psyche but it would be the ground of the ground of what we would call psyche or the psyche
0: and that if you follow the psyche down we see that the psyche is influencing the body and the body is influencing the psyche yes a- and yeah. that matter matter has some psychological like properties and the psyche has a substance in the world Mm -hmm. So it, it makes synchronicity make more sense to me.
2: Jung used a very, um, interesting word, um, to kind of talk about how we might develop or have an awareness of the psychoid. And he used the word apperception. So not quite perception, But it's an apperception. We have a sense of it, a sense of this vital ground of our being that from which emerges, as I said, the instincts on one end, the archetypes on the other, and somewhere in that comes the the ego. And the ego will one day go away But all of that will remain. And Jung was very clear in many of his essays. Probably the most uh, powerful is the essay he wrote about the book of Job in the Bible called Answer to Job. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea of how the divine in that book needed Job's experience as much as Job needed the experience of the divine. That there was a communion there to talk about. Whitley's right. book,
0: <laughs> right one of the things that initially drew me to young is that he didn't think mind and matter were two separate things
3: right right
0: yeah right. so as we wrap up i would was wondering if there is anything that we haven't covered that either of you would like to mention mike did you have anything oh no else? this
1: has been remarkable i've enjoyed every minute of this and this is so you're um Dr. James you've been giving a good uh, f- you've filled in a lot of the like I've been struggling I use the term a few times the mood or the vibe of these experiences of these stories there's a, there's like a there's a mood or a vibe that's a very simplistic way of saying that there's this deeper realm that's that's connected mm-hmm. to um you know uh, to these inner workings so you've I feel like I've got, you've given me a much better framework to wrap my mind around these things. Like I'm not a student of young, but honestly uh, most of my knowledge of young comes from Laura's podcast. So uh, but this has been remarkably good to know that there's like, like I'm, I'm not barking up the wrong tree. Let me put it that way.
2: No. And I would like to thank you because of your work. You've given me more trees to bark up. <laughs> so I like that mutuality.
0: That's wonderful. Okay, so should we wrap it up here?
1: This has been that's a fun. joy. Yeah.
0: Sure. Okay. Please visit the website Speaking of Jung, That's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This episode is also available on Amazon Music, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungi and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to Whitley Strieber and to the late Anne Strieber, to Raven Dana, the Cleveland Ufology Project, and shout out to UFO Twitter, this is Laura London. And you've been listening to a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Young.